1990s was the decade that gave us the Sony Discman, Beanie Babies, Beepers, AOL, Ross and Rachel, Spice Girls, unfortunately, the Slap Bracelet, Doc Martin Shoes, and Tickle Me Elmo. And also, the Magic Eye Optical Illusion. If you squinted your eyes just right, Beyond all of the random dots, a 3D image would emerge. The magic eye pictures were so popular that they put a collection of the images into a book and it made the New York Best Time Sellers list for over 70 weeks. You know, in a world with very blurry ideas of who Jesus is, Revelation 1 gives us a fresh vision of who he is. Like the image that emerges from the magic eye pictures, we see the true picture of who Jesus is in Revelation 1. In the first half of chapter 1, which we looked at last week, we are given a description of Jesus. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth who loves us, frees us from our sin, and makes us priests in his kingdom. In the second half of chapter 1, which we're looking at today, we are given a depiction of Jesus. An image that helps us better understand the real Jesus, not the one culture has helped create. Before we look at the actual vision of Jesus, let's read verses 9 through 11, which will help us better understand the context of the letter. Let's pick it up in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Domitian was the Roman emperor towards the end of the first century. His older brother, Titus, not the one in the Bible, had, the, uh, had been the military commander over the army that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And Domitian was a cruel ruler who unleashed his fury on Christians. Now, some traditions say that the emperor had thrown John into boiling water, but he survived and was then imprisoned on the island of Patmos. What we do know for sure was that he was on the island of Patmos when he received his revelation from Jesus. And notice how he refers to himself, to those he's writing to. I, John, your brother and partner. He did not refer to himself as apostle. He identified with them in their shared suffering. Look at verses 10 and 11. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. John, in a Holy Spirit type of trance or dream, on the Lord's Day, Sunday, which was the new Jewish day of worship after Jesus' resurrection, received the vision of Jesus, which He was to send to seven specific churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. They are listed in verse 11 in the circular order in which they would be delivered. 
It's important for us to understand that while the vision of Jesus was given to seven specific churches, the vision of who Jesus was, and in chapters 2 and 3, what the church of Jesus is supposed to be doing is just as relevant for us today as it was to these seven specific churches. Our churches today are in desperate need of an accurate vision of Jesus and clear direction from Jesus. Because in some ways, I believe that we have lost our way. Francis Chan gave these challenging words about the American church. I quickly found that the American church is a difficult place to fit in if you want to live out New Testament Christianity. The goals of American Christianity are often a nice marriage, children who don't swear, and good church attendance. Taking the words of Jesus literally and seriously is rarely considered. That's for the radicals who are unbalanced and who go overboard. Most of us want a balanced life we can control that is safe and that does not involve suffering. Those are pretty strong words, but I would have to agree with Francis Chan here. And it's my prayer that we can recapture a vision of Jesus and his desires for the church. This week, let's focus on the vision of Jesus. Look at verses 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire, like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You'll notice the word like used seven times. Now, by the way, seven is the number of completion. It's a number of perfection. Uh, John likes threes and sevens and twelve. You're going to see these sets of numbers throughout the book. Now, the word like helps us understand that this vision is symbolism. It's not how Jesus literally looks in his post-resurrected body. Each depiction in this vision is meant to be a description of something about Jesus. So what does this picture of Jesus tell us? Well, first of all, the long robe and golden sash is the wardrobe of the high priests, according to Exodus 39. A high priest prays to God on behalf of the people. Jesus is our high priest interceding for us to God. Jesus prays for us. I mean, how amazing is that? I don't know about you, but when I find a godly person who's a prayer warrior, I go to them when I have prayer needs. Well, we have the best prayer warrior on the planet, Jesus. And so what should our response be to Jesus being our high priest? Well, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our response to the high priest, to come to God with confidence because of Christ. Pray big, pray bold. We need to start praying bad, big, audacious, daring prayers. We come with confidence when we need to confess. We come in humble confidence that God will forgive. We also come to God honestly, not afraid to express how we feel, even if it's anger sometimes. Because Jesus is the high priest, we can pray with boldness and confidence. Are you praying with boldness and confidence? You have a high priest, that's how we're to pray. The vision of Jesus had white hair and fiery eyes. White hair is for the old and wise. The Father has given the same description in Daniel 7, 9. And now it's given to the Son. Like the Father, as mentioned in Daniel, Jesus is the Ancient of Days. He is eternal and He is all-wise, which means He can look with the fiery eyes of judgment and pierce into the deepest part of the human soul. He sees what is seen and unseen. Jesus is our great high priest, and he is the righteous judge. And our response to the righteous judge? Pursue a life of holiness. Because we will all give an account to him someday. In the vision of Jesus, he had feet of bronze, bronze, a loud voice like roaring waters, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and a face that shines brighter than the sun. Bronze feet to trample on the evil ones as the whole world hears him roar as the Lion of Judah someday. And the sword of Revelation 19, when he comes to right all wrongs and destroy the rebellious. And for all of eternity then, his brilliant glory shining so brightly that heaven will have no need of sun or moon. This is not the Jesus we see depicted today. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, effeminate-looking, hippie guru telling us to make love, not war. Jesus may be a God of love, but he is also a righteous judge who will right all wrongs. High priest, righteous judge, and Jesus will be our conquering king. In C.S. Lewis's allegorical book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, from the Chronicle of Narnia series, two girls, Susan and Lucy, get ready to meet Aslan the lion, who represents Christ. Two talking animals, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, prepare the children for the encounter. Ooh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that. He isn't safe, but he is good. I wonder if we've lost a sense of awe 
of the mightiness of our Messiah. I can tell you, John certainly didn't lose it. Look at verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus holds death and Hades in his hands. His defeat of death changed everything. And when John saw this vision of Jesus, 60 years after leaning his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper, he sees not a suffering servant like he did then. He now sees the conquering king in all of his glory. And all he can do is drop down as if dead in holy terror. But catch this tender moment. Jesus lays his hand on his friend's shoulder and says, fear not. We need to understand that there is a difference between a fear of the Lord, which is a reverential awe, and being afraid of the Lord. We don't need to be afraid. Our high priest sprinkled the blood, his own, and made atonement, and it made atonement for our sin. So we do not have to fear condemnation from the righteous judge if we're in Christ. In our response to all of this, we are to have a reverential awe for the king that leads to subjecting ourselves to his reign in our lives. Broad is the road of those who are fans of Jesus. Narrow is the road of those who are true followers of Jesus. The chapter ends with verses 19 and 20. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Seven angels, represented by seven stars, delivering a message from Jesus to the seven churches, represented by seven lampstands. The word, the word angel in, in the Greek language here means messenger. And so it can mean uh, literal angels or it can mean human messengers. Most of the time it means literal angels as we would understand angels. Now, if it's angels... That's pretty cool to think about, that, that churches may have guardian angels. But either way, these verses are a reminder that Jesus loves his church. Is he safe? No, but is he good? Yes, he is the king, and he loves his church. He offers hope to churches experiencing persecution and pain, just like these churches were, as we'll discover uh, in the next few weeks. And if they will yield to his leadership, these churches will shine like the light, will shine the light of Jesus as lampstands to a lost and dying world. 
Who really sits on the throne? Who really is the king? Has, has, has the king conquered your heart and your will? He wants to lead us in love. But we have to yield and give control over to him. I'll close with a story and uh, maybe part truth, maybe part legend. But it's a story of Alexander the Great. And one time he was out in battle and he ended up finding himself uh, surrounded, him and his men. And there was no possible way for victory. And, and so the, the, the king of, of that particular land wanted him to surrender. But instead, Alexander uh, uh, yells out to the king, Surrender your men and surrender your city immediately. And this king just laughed because, because they had him surrounded. And he said, why would I ever <laughs> surrender to you? We, we have you. And Alexander the Great said, here's why. And he ordered all of his men to begin to march. And they marched towards a cliff. The king and the city looked on in horror. But he continued to give them orders to march. One soldier a second soldier, a third soldier marched without hesitation over the cliff to their death. Alexander the Great told the soldiers to stop. And legend has it that that king in that city surrendered immediately. Why? Because there's no stopping an army that is that committed, that surrendered, to their leader. Now, in some ways, it's a poor example because Alexander the Great wasn't a godly man. <laughs> but Jesus is the perfect God man. He is the perfect king. And when we learn as a church, when we learn as individuals to surrender ourselves completely to our high priest, <laughs> to our conquering king the ancient of days who was and is and forever will be when we learn to surrender and follow him watch out world we will shine brightly as the lampstands we were intended to be let's pray father god thank you for um, this picture that we have in your word and with finite minds, we can only even grasp it to a degree. And if, if we stood in your presence, in your son's presence, we would probably fall in holy terror as well. You are so above us, your ways so beyond our ways. And yet in your grace and mercy, you allow us to be your children. You allow our sins to be forgiven because that conquering king came first as a suffering servant, a sacrificial lamb. And so, Father, the least we can do is to give complete reins over, or the complete reins of our lives over to you and let you lead us. May we follow in the ways of Jesus. May he lead our church. May he lead our lives so that we might shine brightly of your greatness, your glory, and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were encouraged by God's word today. You can join us each weekday morning for a five-minute fill-up. And for other teaching, writing, and training resources, don't forget to check out our website at uncagedbibleministry.com. 
The mission of Uncaged is to help people fall in love with the Word of God so they fall more in love with the God of the Word.